0: Hey everyone, it's Alex and Ben. Welcome back to the Oregon Bridge.
1: We're becoming more populist, right? So we have populist on the left and we have populist on the right. You know, how do we build a country? How do we build a community that allows everyone to be successful. And and I wanna look at what are the things that bring us together? What are our commonalities? What different perspectives do you bring to the table, right? It's not about what you look like, but what can you bring that no one else has experience in so that we can get the real value, the true value from diversity.
0: All right, everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, We're really excited today to have Jessica Gomez, who is one of the candidates who is running for governor on the Republican side of the aisle. Uh, Jessica is the CEO of a semiconductor company uh, based in Southern Oregon. Uh, She was born in New York and has experienced uh, homelessness at a very young age as well, which really adds to her unique story, which Ben uh, touches on a little bit in the episode. But uh, Ben, what did you think of the episode? That
2: was a fascinating conversation. I think Jessica is clearly a very intelligent person who's got experience um, at the policy level. She was very fluent in talking about policy issues. I, I think like one of the more impressive guests we've had, um, particularly the higher ed answer, as we talk about in this episode. Um, I was impressed by what she had to say there. Uh, I also think she's got it's going to be tough for her in the Republican primary, um, as you know. It's very crowded over there. There's some folks who I think are. Certainly to the right of her in terms of, um, you know, the way that they talk about their conservatism, but she's got a unique appeal. I think she's unlike any of the other candidates for obvious reasons and not so obvious reasons, both of which I think come up in this episode. Um, But yeah, she's definitely someone that I think is worth listening to and worth learning about. Um, What did you think? What was your takeaway?
0: Yeah, I think that she had some of the best answers when it came to like in-depth policy discussions of probably any of like what, like definitely one of the top tier that we've had on the podcast across the board. Uh, She had really good answers that were like, they weren't too into the weeds where you can't understand if you don't get the issue, but like there was actually some meat there. It wasn't just kind of like BS political talking lines. I was, I was pretty impressed, especially on the answers with higher ed. Uh, And then I would say a couple of the downsides of the episode. So uh, I thought I made a very funny joke because- Mm -hmm. Uh Jessica left the Democratic Party as soon as Ben got involved with it. So, of course, she left because, you know, the radicals like Ben got in. But no one laughed. Uh, that was very unfortunate part of the More, episode. Very and poor then, delivery. You need to work on your... You need to work uh, on d- Two out of ten. Two out of ten. <laughs> uh, and then it also got nerdy about China at the beginning of the episode. But people should look into the semiconductor issue. It's, it's you didn't, serious. It
2: wasn't deal. about China, though. Like, what is your... We're going on a quick aside. Maybe Buddy will edit this out. But what is your actual China... <laughs> What is your actual China critique that you did not make in the episode?
0: So, uh, well, it's not even necessarily a China critique. It's a lot of like, there's companies like Intel, which are investing, like building factories and things like that in China, when there's like a huge semiconductor shortage right now. And it's like a big national security concern, because if we can't make chips, we can't make cars, we can't make high-end electronics. And Oregon is a leader in the in this industry, as Jessica talked a little bit about in the episode. But uh, maybe we'll just do one episode on that someday. Uh, and then we can get into it so yeah we should uh,
2: let's get someone from intel or the oregon
0: technology association or something like that to come on yep but everyone uh thanks again for joining uh make sure you hit the subscribe button and we'll see you in the episode thanks everyone all right well everybody thanks again for tuning into another episode of the oregon bridge we're really excited to have jessica gomez with us today jessica how's it going
1: oh i'm doing great how are you
0: Good, good. And where uh, we know that your staff had told us that you've been on the campaign trail all over the place. Uh, I read a couple news articles, and I saw you were doing a tour of Oregon. So where do you find yourself today?
1: Well, today I'm at home, uh, and I get to. I'm leaving again tomorrow, and I don't think I'm coming back until like right before Thanksgiving. So that's that's going to make for a very busy day of food shopping.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's uh, that's going to be quite 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 the trek all over the place. So. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. And hopefully that trip will go well. Uh, so yeah, the first thing I wanted to start off with uh, is your business experience really interested me. Uh, I'm, I own my own company. Uh, owning your own company is the worst thing in the world. Uh, <laughs> as you probably know, it's very hard. I read I about do. you and your husband's business story and I was like, uh, we didn't have to take debt or anything, but I was like, I totally know the position. It's very difficult. But uh, I was particularly interested because you work in the semiconductor industry. Uh, and I have actually a couple of questions uh, surprise is a little bit nerdy, so you have to bear with me. That's all right. Uh, they're Oregon yeah. related too, but can you just tell us a little bit first about like, what is your business? What do you do? How did you get into semiconductors? What is a semiconductor business doing in Southern Oregon?
1: Yeah. So our company is what they refer to as like a pure play foundry, MEMS foundry, which means that we take designs from our customers and then we fabricate that those designs into functional chips. Uh, much of the work that we do starts pretty early on in the product development cycle. So, some of these uh, designs have never been made before and it might be brand new technology. So, um, different types of sensors. Uh, we make a cancer diagnostics chip for a company in San Diego. Um, we got to actually work on a project with the University of San Francisco, um, and there was a team there that was building an, a bioartificial kidney. Um, and we got to work on that project. So there's a lot of different types of stuff going on. Our company is, is, uh, like an offshoot, or at least our industry is kind of an offshoot under the semiconductor, um, industry because of the types of materials and the style chips that we make.
0: Gotcha. That's, that's very interesting. And, uh, one thing I wanted to ask in particular, and, uh, sorry, you have to be the first one. I've been telling Ben, I've wanted to ask a uh, candidate for governor about China for all of our episodes. <laughs> oh, we were like, yes. we were like nah, Let's do no it. one will probably know anything <laughs> about that. But when you said <laughs> semiconductor, I was like, this is perfect. Yeah. So uh, I think, and a lot of our viewers probably don't know this, but Oregon actually uh, plays a really pivotal role in this because of course, Intel is headquartered in Oregon. And yeah. uh, there is both a lot of shortages in the semiconductor industry right now. I know that's why things like ca- like the price of cars is absolutely skyrocketed. Part of which is because cars have a lot of semiconductors in them now. They're uh, basically a that,
1: walking computer. I mean, exactly, it's, it's yeah, amazing.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting stuff. And uh, you know, one thing it's a big national security concern that, of course, uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: saw for example that companies like Intel are actually investing in semiconductor capacity in China right now and building some of these chips in China, building factories in China and things like that. Uh, I just wanted to ask, because you work in this space, is like, you know, uh, like, does the US still really have a chance in terms of like leading in this issue? And like, how do you think that, you know, you as governor could potentially like empower companies like Intel to help like bring production back to the US, preferably bring it back to Oregon or like kind of just curious of your general response on that question.
1: Yeah, I would say it's a it's a pretty tough pivot right now, because in the 90s, we made 37% of all semiconductor devices were, you know, right here in the US. Um, We had all that manufacturing capacity and pretty quickly that went away. I mean, it was less expensive to uh, manufacture overseas. Um, Sometimes it was easier to manage through the supply chain. And um, our business is very capital intensive as as an industry. And we spend a lot on buildings and and, um, equipment. And so we saw a lot of that manufacturing going everywhere else except for the U.S. And right now we're down to about 12 percent of Mm. um, uh, U.S. semiconductor manufacturers. So um, it's I think the biggest challenge we're gonna have in um, reclaiming some of that capacity is on the workforce side because um, you know we've got we've got really industrious people that know how to design buildings and and we can find locations and you know that's just a matter of time and money, but finding the right people to fill those positions is very challenging. In fact, I was talking to another CEO friend of mine, last week and asking him hey are you having the same issues that we are trying to fill um, even basic engineering positions and he was like it's an absolute nightmare out there i mean we've Hmm. we we've had four um, people that we've made offers to for just one middle management position all four of them were turned down um and we've been had that position open for a year so it's going to be tough i think to make that pivot we absolutely have to do it Um, And it's a really important uh, industry for, especially for Oregon. Oregon's really strong in advanced manufacturing and and semiconductor manufacturing. And um, we have a ton of of potential in that area as we see some of these incentive packages coming from the the federal government to try to encourage the development or redevelopment of the semiconductor supply chain in the U.S.
2: Mm. That's really interesting. Uh, well, I think I do think one of the things we learned from COVID is that we have to dramatically increase our capacity to make things at home because we're not always going to be able to rely on importing from other countries. Um, yeah. But, but Titus has taken us deep into policy so quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to I want to back up a little bit because one of the things that I found most fascinating about your story is. Um, and you're pretty open about this, so I hope you're open to, to talking about this, but you sure. navigated some really challenging circumstances as a kid. Um, on your website, it says that at nine years old, you sort of served as the role of caregiver for younger siblings, you navigated poverty, you experienced homelessness. So yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your childhood and what that experience was like and what it has taught you or how it's led you to the point that you're at right now.
1: Yeah, thanks for that question. Gosh, I have, I have some really great childhood memories, but there was a lot that there was a lot of time there, which that I never really felt like a kid, I had some pretty big responsibilities. And my parents were young, my mom was 18, when she had me.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And my dad was really young as well. And they had all four of us pretty much right in a row. Um, And they really struggled. Um, Financially, they struggled in their relationship. but there was a lot of love in our house. And I think that um, has been something that we've leaned back on as as a family, but, uh, you know, late, much later on, but growing up was was hard. Um, And as the oldest, um, in many families, it becomes your responsibility to almost become like that third helping hand um, Mm -hmm. as a parent. So, you know, when you have a mom that's depressed and laying in bed, you know, it becomes your responsibility to make sure that the other little ones are taken care of, and that um, you know there's someone holding down the fort. And that was, that was me in that case. And and um, you know, I look back on that time, and and I think what a you know you can you could take it either way. Some people you know feel um, bitter about maybe missing out on some things, but I looked at it as a really. Um, important um, part of who I am and an opportunity to grow as a human being because not everyone um, gets to have that responsibility and to feel what that's like um, and grow into that. Um, and, and I did. And there was some really positive things that that came of it. And in fact, our my you know my three other siblings, I have two sisters and a brother, and we're all really, really close for having gone through some of that together.
2: Mm. Well, so my my follow up to that is, you know, I think in in some issues, and I think homelessness is one of them, a lot of the people crafting policy solutions are folks who've never directly experienced um, the challenge. So I'm wondering what your, what navigating homelessness taught you that you think you'll bring to the table in terms of the role of policymaker? Like what insight did you gain from having that lived experience that you want to bring to the table to help craft solutions? Or maybe it's there's specific solutions you have in mind that are born from that experience?
1: Yeah, it's, you know, being, being homeless and feeling um, that constant sense of insecurity. Um, it's almost like, at some point, you just want to give up on it all, right? Because if you if you keep trying and keep getting knocked down, it's that's a really tough um place to be. So sometimes it's easy to give up, right? And to just say, This is it, you know, I'm I'm okay with it. And I'm I'm not gonna continue to to try to dig myself out because once you're there, it's very, very challenging. The other thing I would say is that. Um, there's a whole community out there. It's not that we've got people that are kind of running around on their own. There's good people. There's bad people. There's everybody in between, just like a you know neighborhood that you live in. Um, and um, when you have these, I, I would say like organizations that come in and say, you know, pick a, out individual people and say, well, we have a place for you. Are you ready to go? they are leaving something that's really familiar to them. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, I think a lot of what we're working on, right, what we're dealing with right now stems from addiction and mental health, um, which just adds a really difficult sort of layer and barrier um, to, to the situation. And unless you address those two things, um, you're not going to get a pl- to a place where people are making healthy decisions for themselves because they are so... Um, they're just—they're just not in a place where they can really do that. And I've dealt with um, the the mental health piece in my own family as well, and it's so so challenging on families. So when we think about what needs to happen from a policy perspective, is that we need to recognize all of that is. I'm going to um, have an impact on how effective those policies are, and if you don't account for those things, um, you know you, you could be really missing an opportunity. So, um, for solutions, I'm looking at how do we create a supportive community where people can do well, and how to how do we um, how do we get them to accept help when we know that they won't because they're unhealthy. Um, and um, I'm looking at a a three-tiered system that's kind of modeled after the elderly care model where you have these community living environments. Um, Tier one is maybe like your what would be equivalent to memory care or skilled nursing. It's very high touch. It's a closed facility. You can't leave. Um, And then the next level down would be assisted living. Still a lot of high touch, but there's more activities. There's more um, there's more things that are that that can engage you. and then the next tier down would be your independent living, where you you know you've got a car, maybe you're holding a job still, that kind of thing. So we can do that for people who are struggling with homelessness and and addiction and mental health, and but do it in reverse and start at um, the, that closed facility level and really dig in and um, get people the on the right treatment plans that they can be ultimately successful. Because um, they're going to fight you on it. I mean, that's that's just who we are as humans. We don't know that that when we're in that space, we just don't know that we need the help. Mm.
2: Thank you for that. Um, yeah, that we, We're going to come back to behavioral
0: health, depending on time later. But yeah. I think that was really interesting. So
2: Titus, I'll hand it back to you.
0: Yeah, great. Uh, so, so Jessica, I know that, uh, I believe you were a a registered Democrat, at least up until 2013. Uh, (laughs) and I know that you had also defined yourself as a more moderate candidate, uh, in a recent interview. And I have some sort of specific follow-up questions, uh, but just maybe before that, uh, would you kind of just define like your political background in terms of, you know, obviously you were a Democrat at some point and you're, you know, now running for governor as a Republican. Uh, kind yeah. of what, what happened there? Like what sort of drove the, what was sort of the driving force behind the change? And I know Ben started getting involved in democratic politics around that time. So yeah. uh, I, I think a lot of people left the party around then, right, Ben?
1: Yeah. I t- Nobody I tell, I tell has you. ever
0: left the democratic party.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, being a business owner in Oregon is been increasingly become increasingly difficult. Um, and mm-hmm. that's a big part of um. What I think drove me to want to get more politically involved because you you just see, you know, you try and you try and try and at some point it leads you to the state legislature, right, <laughs> where where uh, where are these uh, where the policies being made. But um, really, I've always I've always been. I, I look at myself and I, I um, and my policies, and I'm very forward thinking. So I don't want to say necessarily moderate, um, although I think that's a term that some people would use, but I'm always looking forward. What can we do moving forward to build a future for for ourselves and and what makes sense and how do we be um, practical about policy? Um, And uh, it turns out that at some point I wanted to vote in the Democratic primary and in Oregon, we don't have open primary. So you have to register with a party. Um, And so that's how I ended up um, registered uh, Democrat. Um, and, um, as I got more involved with policy development and was, you know, really looking at the landscape of Oregon and seeing how, um, how lopsided we were and the, um, and the ideology that was behind, um, a lot of the far left Democrats, I, I realized it just really doesn't align with me at all anyway. You know, I'm about freedom, opportunity. Um, you know, I'm about giving people the best tools to to do their work and creating an environment where they can be successful. And I see that the policies that were being put in place, even though they were really well intentioned, they actually have the opposite um, effect in a lot of cases. And so there's just a, there was just a really a philosophical mismatch.
0: Interesting. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, because I uh... You know, sort of as uh, you know, from from 2013, the Republican Party—I would say the Democratic Party as well—both parties have definitely moved more, sort of to to the right or to the left, whatever. Yeah,
1: more polarized.
0: If, if you're listening on the podcast, that was a perfect plug in Ben for the YouTube videos. As, as Ben's making hand <laughs> motions, uh, so go check us out on YouTube. But uh, you know, obviously there was. Uh, what, 17, 16 candidates, I guess. Uh, And then, well, 17 with with Donald Trump in 2016. The party decided to go with with Trump. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of Republican primary voters want to see Donald Trump run for the presidency again. And the person right under Donald Trump, if not Donald Trump Jr., is Ron DeSantis, who is polling (laughs) at second in the Republican Party. Uh, Obviously, the GOP has moved, you know, further to the right as the years have gone on, very strong on pro-life issues, pro-gun and things like that. Kind of just mm-hmm. curious of your like do you think that that's a good direction for the party and like do you think if so is that a good direction for the party in oregon
1: well i think what's happening is it's it's uh we're becoming more populist right so we have populist on the left and we have populist on the right and um donald trump really wasn't um, a traditional republican he was a populist and i think we started to see uh, you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot, and I think um, much of what we're seeing today is a result of how the 2008 recession was handled politically. Um, you know, we had, uh, if you think about the the young women and men on the on the D side that are that are all about um, social democrats, and you know that that whole movement there, they were. Um, you know just coming into sort of their more uh, adult awareness maybe around that time you know they were maybe 12 13 15 years old watching their parents completely lose everything and no one was held accountable for that. Um, and so the, the same thing happened really on on the right where you know you have these big corporations there you know there was this appearance of a lot of corruption and there were some really bad things that went on and again everyone said well it's not our fault you know <laughs> And and there wasn't there wasn't really um, there wasn't anybody that went to jail. I mean, we had I mean, it was it was mayhem. I remember right when we we started to see the COVID shutdowns. I got this like tightness in my chest and I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's happening again. This is this is going to be like 2008. Um, And there's just so much collective anxiety over that. And I think it's really pushed us towards being much more populous and then pushed us apart. Um, You know, so we have people almost wanting the same, um, same or having the same issues, but wanting very, very different solutions. And so So, it's going to be a challenge bringing people together.
2: So that's because one of the areas where I do think that there's potential for broad alignment across parties and Alex and I have talked about this sort of like cracking down on major corporations, increasing Mm -hmm. tax rates for ultra wealthy people, um, you know, uh, antitrust legislation that sort of breaks up. Um, so so where, where do you fall on those kinds of populist issues? Like and, and, and do, is there a role for that in the position of Oregon governor to play a role in addressing those sort of like larger scale populist Bernie Trump, yeah. you know type, type issues?
1: I think there, you know, there's some pretty big challenges with trying to um separate out some of the big business issues from what impacts small business, right? And so right. that's what we mm-hmm. that's what we typically see. And Oregon is made up. I mean, we are built on the backs of small business owners. Most most small businesses in Oregon are employing like five to 20 people, right? That that's what we're that's what our economy is in, in many cases. And so, you know, we can. We can maybe, you know, many people have gotten on board with this, rah, 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 you know, we've got to hold big corporations accountable and all this stuff, and and you know, tax the rich and, and whatnot. But what they don't realize is that becomes all businesses, right? Um, and there is very few large, large employers in Oregon. And um, when you put policies in place like that, it becomes really disruptive and, and can prevent us from being globally competitive, which is what we really need to be able to do now, right? We have this opportunity um, to bring some of um, some, some of the supply chain home. We have a really great opportunity to get more invested in the core advanced manufacturing in Oregon. We have some amazing like craft food, wine. We have all of these um, really incredible opportunities. and if we if we get too wrapped up into punishing, right, we don't get the opportunity to be competitive.
2: So, so we'll we'll come back to to policy in just a moment but one more identity question um, yeah i think by there might be some minor i know there's a ton of people running for governor on both sides but of the sort of mm-hmm. major contenders that tend to get ink in newspapers titus and i think you're the only person of color running um at least on a high profile level on either side either yeah. Democrat or republican and so the candidates of both parties who are white have weighed in a lot on the issue of racial justice and how they would bring that lens to policymaking or not bring that lens in the case of some uh, candidates that we've spoken to, but I'm curious what your, and it sounds like from your biography that we, we read that your identity, um, as I don't know if you use the term Latina or Hispanic, but that's like a part important part of your story and who you are. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about how that identity would impact policymaking and just your thoughts on racial justice generally. Obviously, that's a huge conversation right now in Oregon. Um, sure. So what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, so I'm a Puerto Rican descent, I mean, my on both sides of my family. So I Mm. grew up eating um, Puerto Rican food, rice and beans almost every day, you know, (laughs) Um, uh, you know, the language was really important in our family, although I don't speak Spanish. Um, And it was culturally, it was just, I didn't really know that we were different. um, As kids. And because
2: because you were with a community of uh, yeah, community of color.
1: Yeah, we were just, you know, that was our family. And, and you know, we were, I would say, um, somewhat, um, I was somewhat sheltered from experiencing tons of other cultures until I got of moved and went to school and, and all of that, right? Um, so that was a different experience, you know, to come to Oregon where people, first of all, I was from New York, so people have noticed an accent and knew I was different, <laughs> and they looked a little different too, so... <laughs> Um, you know and i you know i think that my my um, political background and my um ethnicity is um and you know how i how i uh, approach certain things can be pretty confusing for people because they're like wait a minute you don't you don't fit the mold, right? You're not aligning, right? Why are you doing that? Why are you Republican? <laughs> yeah, you're Gomez, a Republican, Jessica Gomez? You know <laughs> <laughs> you're not supposed to be there. Um and you know there the so when I ran in this uh for the state senate, um identity politics really played um played a big role, right? Where I experienced racism from you know, from my own party's side, you know, there was comments on Facebook, you know, vote for Gomez, and you'll have tacos on every corner. And I'm like, no, oh my bananas. God. Oh my <laughs> like, God. You know, I mean, there is there is some there is that element of it, right. But But I think there's a lot of people that are also um, looking at, you know, how do we build a country? How do we build um, a community that allows um, everyone to be successful. And, and I'm a true believer in you know, the teachings of Martin Luther King and that we should judge people on the contents of their character. And when we see um, this sort of overemphasized, um, you know, uh, um, like we're building policy um, that is emphasizing race and ethnicity, I really question how healthy that is, Um, and I, I, you know, I don't. That doesn't align with me or what I was taught as a kid, and I just think that we're focusing on the wrong thing. I mean, we have some people that are really struggling economically, and it doesn't matter if you're white, Chinese, Hispanic, Black. You know, if you're living in that neighborhood. Um, you're at a disadvantage. And so we should be looking at ways to make sure that, that we are providing opportunities for everyone. We're making our entire system better and, and easier to navigate. Um, and I think what, you know, the trap that, uh, that Oregon has gotten into is that we're going to fix a problem for this very specific population of people. Um, and we're going to leave everything else the same. And that doesn't work.
2: So th- that is really interesting because I definitely don't disagree about we need to provide opportunity for everyone. But I think the argument from the left would be, when we create policies that are designed to create opportunity for everyone, what we see is that oftentimes the people who benefit from those policies tend to be white, and um, that you can actually you, you you can actually use race as a predictor for outcomes in across society, whether it be healthcare, education. Um, um, you know, income, etc, etc. And so I think one of the reasons why the left has moved to be a lot more racially conscious in policymaking is this Mm -hmm. sense that if we're not racially conscious, if we don't bring a racial justice lens to policymaking, then the outcomes because of systemic racism will tend to favor um, folks who are white just because of the way that the system was built. Do you think there's any validity to that? Or how would you how would you parse that?
1: Well, I think, um, so I, gosh, I think that the problem with uh, tackling things in that way is that we are sending the signal to people that they are victims, right? Mm. And when happens when you already feel like a victim, that means that you don't feel like you have that you'll ever be successful, that you'll ever have that opportunity. And so one of the one of the great things um, for me uh, um, growing up is I didn't know any better. Right. No one ever told me I couldn't. Nobody, you know, yeah, maybe I was different, but it was never um, I I never uh, um made the connection of being different and having less, or being different and struggling more. Right. And I think that if I had, I I, you know, it's almost like it could be self-limiting. Um, for people. And to take, you know, little kids and start teaching them um, some of the um, elements of critical race theory, which is, you know, you're, you uh, come from this background, you have blonde hair, blue eyes, you're fair skin, and therefore, you know, you have more opportunity than someone who maybe looks like Jessica Gomez, right? Um, the the kids who look like me say, well, you know, I guess that's it for me. I'm, you know, I'm a goner and, and it really, it, it, I think it could limit their, their potential to, to really strive and do well. And yeah, maybe it is harder work, but it's certainly not impossible. And if we don't make the effort, then we'll never get there.
2: I think Titus is going to take us to critical race theory here in just a moment. Um, But I think it's, it's interesting what you're saying, because you're not necessarily disagreeing with the premise, which is like, There are some advantages in our society to being white. I think that, like, or maybe you are, but that to me, I think that that part is pretty much apparent. Um, it's
1: not white, it's sameness. It's sameness, right? If you go if you go to any other country, right, and yeah, and you go sure. and, and you experience, I mean, go go to Shanghai. Like I stick out like a sore thumb, and so will you. You'll be a but, foot taller than most people. But <laughs>
2: even from, from friends of mine who've done business in China, being white has its own advantages in uh, in the Chinese economic sort culture.
1: Sort of <laughs>
2: But so but I mean
1: it's you know it's it's a matter of perspective I think.
2: So I, I do think it like I I am fascinated by this conversation because I agree I um a student that I mentor um his name is Abdi, who now uh, goes to Howard University and is doing incredibly well academically, um, he's African American. We've talked mm-hmm. about this sense of like it is really important for young people to have a sense of empowerment and not a sense of being a victim or mm-hmm. being, or or not even, whether you call it being a victim or being incapable of overcoming obstacles. But the flip side is we should also be truthful and accurate um, in what we're teaching our kids and how we're teaching our kids. And I don't think, like, I don't I don't hear people on the left very frequently saying we actually need to bring critical race theory to K-12 um, I don't think that that would be inappropriate. But they're thing. doing
1: it, you know. They they are. I mean, if you if you listen to parents, I mean, parents have been homeschooling their kids now for a while. But and how, so how is cri- starting to see?
2: How do you see critical race that. theory show up in K twelve? Like, I'm on a school board, and I don't see. I mean, Reagan. It's can not, know- It's
1: it, looking. It's not everywhere, right? But it is. It is becoming part of the conversation, and um, and I think you know, parents are questioning. Like, okay. How healthy is, and I can tell you, so um, you know, I sit on a number of boards and commissions, um, and they're using now um they're collecting what they're calling real D data um, or real data, right? They're collecting information about people who are applying for boards and commissions based on, you know, what they who they what their sexual orientation is, how they identify, you know, what their cultural background is. Um, and, um, and it's, that is become so much of the emphasis now that the, um, the core competency is now looked at almost secondary, or at least that's what is now being, um, that is, that is what the emphasis, um, appears to be. Right. And so when you, when you are, you know, set separating people in, in bins like that, I just, Yeah, I don't know how how healthy that really is. I want to look at what are the things that bring us together? What are our commonalities? Um, What different perspectives do you bring to the table, right? It's not about what you look like, but what can you bring that no one else um, has experience in so that we can get the real value, the true value from diversity, not just saying that we do on a piece of paper and making, you know, a board appointments based on, you know, whether you're Hispanic or not.
2: Yeah, I, I think there's definitely something to that. But I think the problem is if we're not, if we're racially blind, as in we don't take into account race or sexual orientation or other identities, then I think that will that leads us to a system like we have where, like, if you look at the legislature, if you look at local government, if you look at state boards and commissions, in most cases, it's not actually representative of the people that we're supposed to be serving so I think you're right, it shouldn't just be qu- quotas, I don't think are the answer if it's just mm-hmm. like, you know, check boxes. But I do think there has to be some way- I'm not saying
1: don't have any emphasis on okay. on equity or inclusion or diversity. I mean, those things are important, right? But when we, when we make it such a huge part of the conversation, you're missing out on a lot of things that are also important. Um, for example, I, I don't want to be invited to sit on um, a the board of a public company because of my cultural background. That's not the reason. I want to be invited because I'm the best qualified person. I'm smart. I'm educated. I understand the company. I understand the goals. Um, and people want to work with me. Right? Nobody wants to be a token Yep. Um, board member that doesn't have, feel good
2: I have said the exact same um I'm running for the state state house right now in house district 25 and I literally just like last week said I don't want people to vote for me because I'm the gay candidate like that that has never been appealing to me to have like the vote for me because I, it's like vote for me because I'm I work really hard and I understand these things and I want to do yeah. a good job and these are my platforms and I'm
1: going to kick ass and yeah you know do all this cool stuff like you know who cares about that other totally
2: yeah. you know, and, but, and I think a lot I also, of people feel like that. But I also think and you probably would agree with this. I also think my experiences as a gay person will be valuable for me in that role. Just like the perspective you have as a Latina is like, we actually should have representation from people who live, have different lived experiences. And that will make absolutely the delivery. Yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, absolutely. I, again, there there is such a an a incredible value of bringing people together of different Walks of life, you know, different backgrounds um, from different regions. I mean, it is really important. So um, now that we, we, we yeah, now Go that we, we beat some, that one up, pretty I was going to say, now that we've built some <laughs> common ground,
2: we've built some like common ground here, Titus, why don't you tear it all down with an education policy question? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, yeah, I I have one more question related to critical race theory, then I'll, I'll actually p- pivot a little bit more into policy based on your background. But yeah, uh, I mean, uh, and Ben and I have. Written about this in the liftoff a bunch is that uh, you know, school boards and uh high schools and middle schools, et cetera, have really become like the the culture war flashpoint. Uh and I'm by no means an expert on chart on school boards and anything like that, but it seems like at least these sorts of things are getting a lot of attention. And I mean, they're causing a lot of backlash from parents in particular. I yeah. mean, we just saw what happened. Uh, In Virginia, uh, with Yunkin, the New Jersey's governor race was very close. They were running on some similar issues, not exactly the same. But Mm -hmm. uh, just to kind of cap off the CRT issue, uh, if you were governor, you know, is that something that you would push back on in terms of education policy or like how would you deal with that?
1: Well, I think we need, if we don't like um, critical race theory um, and teaching it, let's say in school or I would say, um, you know, some people call it indoctrination, right? Um, if we don't want that in school, we've got to pro- provide an alternative. And you can't just say, no, we're not going to teach anybody about, you know, the racism. We're not going to teach anybody about, you know, how our our laws and how our policies have changed to provide, you know, better environments so everybody can grow and thrive together. Like there was some real... Um, changes that have been made and and still work to go to make sure that the playing field is is fair. Um, but I, I think again we need to provide that alternative. And I'm looking at an organization it's called um, Fair. It's Foundation Against Racism and Intolerance. Um, and there's some really great people from all walks of, of life on there, all different cultures. Um, And they're putting together, you know, here's some information that will be helpful in um, helping to guide those conversations um, about racism and intolerance um, from an educational perspective. Um, You know, here, you know, here is, um, here is some recommendations for reading and things like that to help people have those conversations. And and I think we need to remain open. We need to remain, um, um, you know, just I, I think closing ourselves off because we don't like critical race theory doesn't mean we get an out and we don't get to, you know, we don't have to discuss um, racism or teach about it in school.
2: So mm-hmm. one one quick thing, Titus, before we move, um, I'm curious how this, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the situation in Newburgh, but it's been Blowing up recently, and it seems like it, it, this is we, Titus and I joke about how there's all these like small local issues that have become national news stories in Oregon over the last couple of years. Yeah. and Newburgh is a great example.
0: Literally, no one in the country knows where Newburgh,
1: Oregon. <laughs> 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 I was just saying, I literally no one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, but but th- for, for our listeners who aren't following, um, uh, four to three conservative majority, one in the last election, they have done a few things, but the most. Uh, salient, I think, is they passed a policy prohibiting pride flags and Black Lives Matter symbols and flags to be displayed by staff on school grounds, um, in classrooms, et cetera. The fallout from this has actually been, I think, far worse than just that policy. In fact, there's a lawsuit by the the Newberg Education Association that says, I still can't believe people on talk. This is like mind-blowing to me. It gets me so upset. But a middle school principal told their staff at a staff meeting I don't want you to tell your students that it's okay to be gay or it's okay to be trans. If you have a problem with that, come talk to me, which is obviously like trickle down from this policy that's about symbols, but it's becoming part of the culture from the staff Mm -hmm. about basically like, do not affirm a student who is LGBT. Um, And I think it's also created some, some hostility among students. Like there's reports of like a student who was joking about slave trade and using like racial slurs on social media Mm -hmm. Um, There's a teacher who showed up in blackface to school, Uh, not a teacher, excuse me, a a classified employee who showed up in blackface. So I'm curious on like taking critical race theory out of it, because that's not actually Mm -hmm. about critical race theory, but it is about race. It is about school boards and education policy. Do you have any thoughts on what should be done about that situation? Or do you think, you know, local control, they're allowed to do what they want to do?
1: Well, I think I, I believe in in there are some decisions that really should be made locally, um, but I also believe in in love and understanding, and that we've got to find a way to work through this. And um, we are we've become again so polarized um, that everything is politicized. Racism should not be over, should not be politicized in that way. It's not a political issue. It's a human issue about all of us, and we have to find a way to. Um, accept each other, to support each other, to be more loving, to be more understanding that we are all human beings. I don't care if you've got purple, green hair. I don't care if you've got missing five toes. I mean, none of that stuff really matters. At the end of the day, um, for me, I want an environment where everyone can be themselves, everyone can be happy, and they can be prosperous, support their families, um, th- those are the things that really um, matter is that is that we we are um, not um, engaging in this kind of conversation that becomes so heated that we stop seeing the human beings behind what we're talking about.
0: Mm. Yeah. So I uh, b- before before Ben stole my thunder there, uh, I was <laughs> going to talk about education, but actually <laughs> higher education. Yeah. Uh, so I want to. Uh, And Ben has been getting uh, many, many texts from me over this issue. Uh, He doesn't (laughs) respond to many of them. Uh, It's because they're
2: annoying, but yeah, go ahead. (laughs) There has
0: been, uh, and maybe you've seen some of these in the Wall Street Journal. They have like put uh, this female reporter, I forgot her name, but she has just been dropping bombs after bombs on uh, what I would say is the higher education industrial complex. And Mm -hmm. what many of these articles show and they're actually a lot of the times impacting minority students too. And like these articles like actually make me sick to my stomach yeah. is these top tier institutions. They market to, you know, kids saying you need to get this master's in social work. You need to get this master's in theater or whatever they spend, you know, ungodly amounts of money taking out unlimited graduate loans, which to me is just absurd that that's even something that you can do. And, They get the, you know, they come with 250, 300 K of debt out of college and they make $40,000. And, Mm. uh, I went to the university of Oregon and I'll give an example. I'm looking this up right now, but it looks like that, uh, it says Oregon law students when they graduate and move into the public sector, make about $52,000 a year. Law school students. Yes. Law school students. Yes. Yes. So, uh, I'm just sort of curious because I also know you run a successful business. Uh, You did not attend a four-year university. You only got a associate's degree from a community college is Mm -hmm. like uh, from your perspective, because I think that the governor does have a lot of sway over this. It's like, what, like, what would you do to reform the higher education industry? Like, to me, it is honestly shocking that no one has gone to prison over this. Uh, Like they are clearly marketing. Like this is clearly a for-profit industry, even with these public institutions. Like, (laughs) They are telling people these degrees are worth it. They're going to get great jobs. And like, that's clearly just not happening. Uh, Like, where do we begin to sort of reform that? And like, what do you think that that reform looks like? Because obviously you were able to get a two-year degree. I'm sure it wasn't as expensive as going to a four-year or, you know, also two-year master's program. You're able to be successful. And I have a lot of employees who didn't graduate from college and they're making more than a lot of most college graduates because mm-hmm. we taught them on the job skills. Uh, how do you kind of look at that issue and like what are the kind of the main points that you see for that?
1: Yeah, so you're absolutely right. College is way too expensive now. Part of part of what happened, so I sit on a um, I'm the board chair for Oregon Tech, which is Oregon's only polytechnic university. And that means that we have a, you know, our training is very hands-on um and what we've seen is over a couple decades um, states have divested from public education from our public higher education system meaning we used to support um universities at about 78 percent state funding and now we're about 40 percent of of the total budget and so when that happens um the 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 way that colleges and universities, public universities, and I don't, I don't know too much about the privates and how they handle their finances. Um, I know the public system pretty well, but what ends up happening is that you end up having to raise tuition year after year after year to make up for that, um, that lack of funding. There's also a lot of constraints on. Um, how you manage your funds. Um, And so, you know, we have, um, we have, uh, and those public universities have a very, very large, um, payroll is the largest expenditure. Um, There, you know, you don't really get to negotiate your own health insurance. You don't get to negotiate your own benefits package. There's some things that you're just sort of stuck with based on being part of a public university system. You know, you have to pay a lot for, Um, you know, maintenance and some of these other things. So um, it becomes very tricky to try to find ways to close that gap without raising tuition. And what ends up happening is every year we go to the legislature and we beg, beg, beg for adequate funding so that we can continue to to keep tuition low. Um, On top of all that, you have new legislation that happens every, you know, every time we have a session, that inherently raises the cost of operations because you're having to sort of comply, you're having to do more, you're having to prove that you know you're in compliance of whatever new policy that's in that's in place. So that's why we see, um, you know, a lot of a lot of this um, um, where tuition has just kind of gone up like crazy. The other, um, so I think the question is, what do we do about it? Um, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm a big believer in hands-on training. I think we need to better prepare um, students starting in high school. So I want to put in place a statewide apprenticeship model starting in the 11th grade. So um, basically what would happen is um, you want you, know, you want to be an apprentice, you select a career track, um, you could connect it up with a local employer, you go to work quarter of the time while you're in school your senior year, you're working half the time, you're still getting academic credit, but now you're engaged and you're making money, right? And, and you're building those skills that you know you need, everybody needs in order to, to go to work. You're also learning about your career track. Um, you might even uh, get college credit. Um, so that's one way to actually um, give people more exposure as they're going through this ex- exploration about what do I really wanna study in school? Um, the other thing that I, I really want to make sure that we can get done is a universal credit program for, um, for college. So um, you hear, I hear it all the time where you've got a, um, a student that has maybe done some, you know, self-exploration, taken a bunch of classes. They decide all of a sudden, okay, I, I you know, I, I want to go to this particular um, college and I want my credits to transfer, and they end up a lot of transfer credits don't make it over to their new degree. So so that means that they're leaving so much of that investment in time and money on the table. So I want to make sure that every college credit that somebody has is fully transferable within that public system. So any community college or any um, public university, so that we're at least, you know, we're not losing what we've already invested in.
2: I love that idea. Just quick interjection. Yeah. Is, like there's a bunch of students who graduate from high school, get in, enroll in a community college. They say, oh, sorry, your credits don't transfer. They have yep. to take the class there. Then they transfer to a four-year school. The four-year school says, oh, your credits don't transfer here. They have to take it again. Like, that's I mean, that's ridiculous, a, but it is universal credits is a great idea.
1: And, it, and it's just, it's, we don't, we don't have systems that are aligned with each other well enough to do that. Um, but there's a lot of work that's going into doing that now. And, and, and Oregon can do it. We just got to get off of you know, get on the ball with that. Um, you know, I think that um, universities and public universities in our state need to be better integrated with our economic development uh, strategy and goals. Um, this is something that California has done and did early very, very well. You know, I'm talking 30, 40, 50 years ago, um, This they integrated public universities into their economic development strategy, especially around um, technology. And even though California has now has made a lot of mistakes, um, they have an economy that can withstand a lot of that because they've got this, you know, regenerative engine that is coming out of their public university system for innovation and technology development and um, research that um, we never fully developed in this state and so um, that also, I think, will bring more dollars to higher ed um, and and have a really big impact on on our economy, um, and hopefully, you know, give people the opportunity um, that they need in order to to be educated and and make more money. And then the other thing is, um, you know, in general, I mean, a hundred, you know, one hundred and fifty years ago, um, education was about. Um, not going to work. It was about being able to go to a dinner party and hold an educated conversation, right? And and we're now and the trade that you learned, you were learning at home with your family. You were a farmer. Or you, you know, you did metalworking or you, you know, whatever. You, you know, you were um, in manufacturing. Um, we used to make things here, and slowly but surely, we've kind of moved away from that. And so we still have a lot of emphasis on liberal arts. Um, in this country, and which is not necessarily a bad thing, but I think people get uh, people misunderstand um, that as a career track. Um, and it's a very amorphous career track, right. And so we can do a much better job at um, uh, making sure that we're doing that counseling up front and making sure that people have some experience to go on like, yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm going to get a psychology degree because I know I'm going to become, you know, I'm going to have my own practice. Right. mean, that's, that can be a real track, but if you go get a psychology degree and just because, you know, you're interested in it and, you know, then you're in debt 60 grand and you're working at Starbucks. Yeah. That doesn't work out so well. So I think there's more that we can do to align skills, align interest. Um, but we've got to start earlier and we have to start with our little kids and exposing them to, what is out um, out there in the world.
0: Thank you for that, that's um fascinating issue. So- I was gonna say that was probably the best higher ed defined platform we've had on this podcast. For sure, so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you, you. you good on you and your staff to clearly have the ideas down. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, she,
0: she cheated, she's on the board of a higher ed institution. So we got- <laughs> it, it doesn't even count, she cheated. <laughs> so
2: our, our, final, our final question here um, is, we'll, we'll shift to politics real quickly. So. In the GOP primary, you've got Bud Pierce, Dr. Bud Pierce, who's mm-hmm. been the nominee before, got a lot of name recognition. You've got Stan Polian, who's, who's the mayor of Sandy, who's tapped into this sort of anti-COVID sentiment on the right. You've got Bridget Barden, who's raising a bunch of money, knows the political scene really well. Can you give us the political case? Why to get make a case about why you can win this primary and win the general election? Why you think? you're the candidate who can pull it off despite the those advantages that other candidates have um what's your plan for winning this winning this primary and then the general
1: yeah so i uh, my team has cautioned me not to give away their strategy so <laughs> Fair, you don't have to give <laughs> but, us the playbook but no i mean i think you know you, you we talked a lot about um identity politics um in in this podcast and i think um you know, reality is your profile matters, um, and people want are looking for something different. They're looking for some for someone who aligns better with their um, own lived experience. Um, and I I really bring that to the table in a in a meaningful way. Um, you know, we also have to have someone that's got practical business experience. Um, you know, and I I look at the the candidates that we have, and I'm the only CEO of a, from the ground up, you know, manufacturing company that is, that is currently, you know, working through some of the challenges that we have here in Oregon. And that's, you know, we've got to have somebody that understands um, the impact of the policies that they're putting in place. Um, And so, um, you know, we've got to communicate that, we've got to communicate it often, we've got to raise a lot of money um, politics is expensive, um, but um, I think we've got a really good um, a really good shot at this and and the other point is we've got to have somebody that can make it through a general election. Um, and you know we've got um, we've got more unaffiliated and independent voters um, than than either party holds. Um, but we're still very, we're at a disadvantage on the R side. Um, And I believe that we have to have candidates that are exciting, that are future focused, um, that are going to really send the message that, hey, we're not here, to, you know, I'm going to be governor of this entire state, right, including our rural parts, including Portland Metro, and we have to have somebody that can bring everyone together and align them around a common vision for our state, where are we going in the future, what is the, does the future in Oregon look like in 10 years, what are we doing for our kids, um, so that we can have a thriving state. Um, and so far, I haven't really seen um, people articulating a clear vision for us. And, and I think that's going to be a competitive advantage.
0: All right. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast. Uh, before we, we let you go, uh, and this will really show how, how well your staff helped you in terms of prep, uh, where do people go to find you? Uh, where do they go to follow you on Twitter? Where do they find you on Facebook or social media or whatever? If folks want to, you know, volunteer for your campaign. Donate. Learn more about you. Uh, where should they go?
1: Yeah, you can go to the website. It's jessicagomezforgovernor.com dot com, um, actually dot org. See, very unprepared, aren't I? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: at
2: least you're not. You You remembered. A uh, yeah,
1: actually, yeah. you can just Google me, and there's like five, ten pages that pops up, and you can go in and check it out. Um, we've got, you know, we're starting to do more articles um, there's more policy up on that site. You can connect to Facebook, Twitter, all of those, um, social media outlets and, and, um, yeah, and there's a place to donate as well.
0: Great. Well, Jessica, thank you again so much for joining us, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, please make sure to subscribe, go check us out on YouTube. Uh, and if your platform allows, please give us five stars, uh, because we love when you do that. So, uh, we'll see you in the next one. And thanks again, Jessica.
1: Thank you. (laughs)